Hey everybody, this is the show that I recorded back in December with Rob Morris. I said that I'd make it the new show for that month and it's taken until now to churn through the incredibly long audio and cut it down to its still incredibly long form right here. All the normal Rob show caveats apply. I don't control his end of the audio and I've got slightly worse control over mine. Plus the length pretty much burns me out on editing so they don't have quite the same spit and polish and they'll sound a little bit rougher than a regular show does. It's good though, it's a good show. Rob and I are starting to draw pretty neat little audiences so we have some interesting questions to tackle on top of the thesis, which is first, that Donald Trump is diminishing US power in the world, and second, to ask whether that diminishment is a good thing. Anyway, I'm John Coombs, he's Rob Morris, and this is Talk for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own uh, criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal, to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. So today we're going to discuss something that I've been thinking about for a while. Is the question is, and we're formulating it as a question is, is Donald Trump's destruction of U.S. power a good thing? And uh, before we get into that, I'll also got to demonstrate, I know that I've got a lot of people who don't believe that Donald Trump is a bad thing for U.S. power. Uh, so I think we've got to address, John and I have got to lay out why, in fact, we think that Donald Trump is destroying U.S. power. And then we'll talk about whether or not that's a good thing. I guess to start off, we should make clear how we feel about Donald Trump's approach to U.S. power. And I think a good way to start with that is to bring up something that we discussed last, last time John and I talked, when we discussed what's happening to the State Department right now, what's happening to 
sort of the U.S.'s formal diplomatic structure, like how it's sort of really being destroyed. And it's, it's the, the, the distinction, the crucial distinction is between the stuff we hear about, the stuff we read about in the newspapers all the time, stuff like the Middle East, Syria, Iraq, issues like that, and everything else that the United States government does. Through the State Department, through other institutions, the United States is present in every country in the world. And every country in the world is obligated to have a policy or an approach to the United States. We'll get into the weeds a bit on what Donald Trump's influence looks like in the more telegenic, well-known disaster places. But I think it's also important to focus to realize that the it's, it goes way beyond that type focus. And to really talk about Trump's effect on U.S. power, we can't just talk about those few sort of sacrificed countries that are being destroyed by U.S. military might or conflicts that the United States has created. It goes far, far beyond that. You want to weigh in, John? Yeah, well, definitely we're going to have to get into the stuff we talked about in the last show on... Tillerson, and I think we might even be able to mention the fact that Tillerson's uh, probably on his way out because he desperately wants to be out and because Trump wants to get him out. And they were going to replace him, supposedly, with the head of the CIA, Mike Pompeo, uh, who's even more into the Steve Bannon-esque clash of civilizations, war between Western Christendom and Muslim kind of thing. So, you know, I can only see that going in a bad direction. But the other thing I, w- I want to touch on and that we'll eventually get to is in as much as I think Rob and I are probably going to agree that the Trump administration has managed to diminish U.S. power in a diplomatic sense, it hasn't, and it intentionally has not, in a in the sense of the military or the power to harm. I think that's a really important point. But sorry, did I cut you off? Did you have a thought to finish? No, 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 no. no I think that's a very important point, but I think that also gets to the distinction that I'm trying to make. It's like, yes, we have a tremendously powerful military instrument. And yes, Donald Trump and, and his, his affinity for generals has involved that being pushed to the fore more forcefully. I, I saw a clip today that we now apparently have boots on the ground in Yemen, which is, which is just shocking to me. I know we'd always been doing special forces stuff there, but if you look, it's in every single Mideast country. Well, I don't want to overstate things, but in most of the places in the Middle East where, where the United States has an interest, Donald Trump uh, and his generals have jacked up the U.S. military presence there. I, I think that's that's insane. And I think if you take a very limited approach to U.S. power and U.S. prestige, it's like, yeah, yeah, like sort of the, this sort of like U.S. as bully thing, then yeah, I guess in a very limited sense, you could say that Trump has increased um, U.S. power. But the fact that, you know, we can blow things up good is nowhere near as important to U.S. power and prestige as the United States' position in the world broadly. And yes, that physical force is a big part of that, but it is by no means all of it. You've got, you know, I don't know, can't put something like this in percentages, but it's, you know, three-part U.S. power and prestige, as I see it, is maybe one or two parts um, that physical military power and about eight parts the fact that the rest of the world, while they may not trust us, they may not like us, they're kind of like willing to just sort of go along, get along in the system that the United States has created. And it's that, it's that that diminishing that I think is is horrifying and is is a real, real problem for the United States. Um, we're not capable, and I, I to put it in a really basic way, we're not capable of exerting ourselves militarily 
in more than four or five countries. I mean, we're, we're doing stuff in, gosh, dozens of countries at this point. But if it gets to the point where we don't just have one or two states that disagree with us and actively oppose us, when it gets to the point where we've got dozens of states actively opposing us, then we're screwed. We're already in an absurd debt situation. We're already spending an extraordinary amount of money to deal basically mostly with like guys in caves. And uh, the idea that we can just have a strong military, a military, and, and continue to have real influence and power in the world, that's just simply not true. Yeah, and, you know, it's one of those lessons that you would have thought we'd have learned in the Philippines at the turn of the last century. A lesson that if we didn't learn it in the Philippines, you would have thought we would have learned it in Vietnam. And if we didn't learn it in Vietnam, that we would have learned it in Afghanistan. But it seems like a lesson that we're... we're apparently destined to teach ourselves it over and over and over for the rest of U.S. history. But anyway, I think what we ought to get into is the ways in which we actually think the Trump administration, what it's been doing, the way they act, has been and how it has been diminishing U.S. power abroad. You can get us started off there. What was that? Sorry, can you, I was uh, dealing yeah, with... We, get, uh, we gotta get rid of Barry White. Why do we, why do we attract so many anti-Semites? I don't know mm-hmm. what's up with that. Well, I don't know. I mean, we're not we're not as uncritically supportive as Israel as ninety five percent of other uh, U.S. media. So I don't know. All right, Barry White. I think uh, we're thank you. Uh, we've established that Barry White does not like Israel or the Jews, which is a perfectly fine opinion to have in our comment stream. But if you're going to continue to shout at the top of your lungs and let nobody else talk about it, you will be blocked. So all right, I'll give Barry one last chance. All right. Sorry, you had raised. You had asked me a question. I was dealing with the live chat. Yeah, I think we just ought to ought to kick off with how we think the U.S. is diminishing in its diplomatic power abroad. How the Trump administration is doing it. Absolutely. Well, I think we we covered with our last conversation with the the conversation on the State Department that uh, maybe I'll link in the comments or something like we established sort of the process issues. The State Department, which is where where diplomacy is done for the United States, not just like. And once again, focusing on, gosh, where are we at? 107, no, we're 200 odd countries in the world right now. And the State Department is the bureaucracy that deals with that. The Trump administration and his guy who who was chosen to lead the State Department, Rex Tillerson, uh, have chosen to really just brutalize the institution. People are leaving left and right. They're implementing a 30% budget cut. It's a mess. They've essentially destroyed our main, they haven't destroyed, I mean, it still exists, but the, 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 our, our main tool of diplomacy has been, has been cut down. I mean, I think we've got a two-hour conversation covering that. What I think is more interesting is, to me today, is, uh, is looking at the way that Donald Trump's public persona and public approach to things is, uh, is just tremendously damaging. Maybe I should be a little clearer about sort of how I see the world and how I see a number of issues related to multilateral institutions. When I was a kid, when I was in my 20s, early 20s, I was sort of more supportive of the traditional sort of conservative, I'll put quotes on it, the sort of standpoint or position that you'll read in a lot of conservative media towards international institutions. Like, oh, why is the UN being mean to Israel? Or why, you know, why is this not doing what we want it to do? Blah, 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 blah. And I used to be really like sympathetic to that idea because I didn't know much, because I hadn't read much history and I didn't know much about the institutions in question. And having looked at these institutions, things like the United Nations, the IMF, the World Bank, 
and sort of how they came to be, you know, I came to a, a slightly more adult realization that these are U.S. institutions. They are controlled by the United States. They were created by the United States. And their, their charters were written by the United States. And I think it, it, I am a fan of these institutions because I think there's a potential there that they could grow into more democratic things. But I also acknowledge that a lot of those more democratic elements, like the General Assembly and the United Nations, is sort of a fig leaf, sort of a, okay, let's give people a way to express resentment against us. So they continue to participate in this institution that functions, you know, our institution of control. And uh, it's, it's fascinating to watch people in the Trump organization, the Trump administration, more or less the same thing at this point, adopt this like really infantile, like, oh, why is UN mean to Israel approach? Not as a way to curry favor, not as a way to pick up votes, but as part of their public diplomacy, as part of their position when they are speaking for the United States. And it's, it's just insane to me. Today, in fact, there was, there's a resolution in the General Assembly, the quasi-democratic element of the United Nations, going forward, there's a vote going forward today, and both Nikki Haley and Donald Trump, Nikki Haley is our ambassador to the United Nations, have, have threatened, have like consciously threatened that like, if the vote doesn't go our way, we might take back some aid because you're not showing us the proper respect. I mean, it is, oh God, it's, 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 the, it's just idiotic is what it is. And it's, it is Nikki absolutely, Haley. hmm? Nikki Haley, supposedly one of the uh, diplomatic adults in the room, used the literal phrase, we're taking names, referring to the countries which receive aid from the United States and who aren't willing to support our unilateral move to put our embassy in Jerusalem. It's kind of self-fulfilling because it's, it's these guys assuming that they're speaking from a position of weakness, which is Simply not true, but it can become a, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, you've got these, these institutions that are still largely run for our benefit. Um, I, I think the, and my, I don't know, my, my sort of experience as a lawyer plays into this, is that before I started sort of working in and around sort of international business and seeing how that worked, it was easier for me to have this idea that the U.S. is somehow an underdog or put upon or or taken advantage of with some of these institutions and uh, international approaches. And uh, I'm here to tell you, having looked at this stuff for a couple of years in, in great detail, that couldn't be further than the truth. Things like the World Trade Organization, things like the United Nations, like, I mean, that stuff, though actually the WTO specifically is developing more, slightly more democratic, for lack of a better term, aspects, you know, more buy-in and, and benefits for other countries in the world. I mean, these things are there to preserve and protect U.S. power. And it, it is insane to me to just see these folks act like weak thugs. I mean, that's what a bully is, essentially, is a weakling. And the idea that the United States needs to do this at this point is just, I mean, it would never be a good policy and a good approach for the United States to take. But just to see it now is just mind-blowing. Yeah. And to, to drill down or to expand a little bit, I guess, on what you were saying, like, like Rob just said, we live in a world governed at least in part by multilateral institutions. And that's not just stuff like the UN or the WTO or the IMF or the World Bank. It's also stuff like the Nonproliferation Treaty and all the other treaties that govern sort of world behavior. And in as much as none of those international institutions are perfect, 
like Rob said, the U.S. had the largest hand in forming them and thereby still the largest hand in controlling them. And without getting into the morality or quality of the results that those institutions have generated, and especially talking about the IMF and the World Bank and the WTO, I think I might have different opinions than Rob. But without getting into any of that, those structures, what they've done is allowed the U.S. to control basically the world zeitgeist for 60 years, at ex- no, 70 years, at extremely low cost. That is that, you know, if you look at the ways that one country can make another country do something, right, it's... It's diplomacy, and that could be any number of things, from the institutions we're talking about to economic pressures to whatever, and then military force. And one of those is always, always, always much cheaper, much more efficient. And if the U.S. had tried at the barrel of a gun to convince every other country in the world that low trade barriers and free marketeerism was the way to go, man, that would have been an expensive proposition. And like like I said, I'm not endorsing the results, our complex of multilateral institutions got that done and got it done at low cost. Yeah, at, at, at almost no cost. And it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I'm looking a lot at the British Empire right now, and they had to go and enforce free trade by with gunboats and whatnot. And that was expensive, and it eventually um, uh, sort of killed them through overstretch. Uh, and the fact that these institutions, I mean, and, and there's so many of these structures that people... Like in the State Department, I think that I can't remember the exact details of this, but there was some kerfluffle, it was in the news this week, around human rights, around Tillerson and certainly Trump didn't feel like human rights should be as much of a priority uh, anymore uh, for these institutions because they're going to be tough and f- focus on real politics. And it's just like, it's, it's fascinating to me because it's like these fucking clowns don't realize that human rights has been a tremendous club in the U.S. arsenal for decades. It's just a clown show, as if, as if human rights was a concept that was ever used by the United States for anything other than our benefit. The Trump administration is it's sort of government by people who don't understand how anything works. It's tremendously frustrating to look at. And I think that the instant counter to that is, well, yeah, but no, this is tough and honest and do. And it's like, what about diplomacy and about the way the world works do you think is tough is, is honest or, or rewards toughness. Very little of it, uh, very little of it. And to the extent that there's more of that, the world becomes a more dangerous place. A more dangerous, more unstable place is always worse for the guy on top. And that's us at this moment. And yeah, take a look, take a look at that chat because I think we have some stuff we might want to talk about there. But human rights is a really interesting, a really interesting point because like Rob said, it's always been used as a cudgel with which to bludgeon other countries into submission. So you look at you look at different times in the past when the U.S. has tried to extract concessions from, say, Cuba or Iran or any of the other traditional bugbears. The thing that we always go to are those Amnesty International reports on what go, or what on what's going on in those countries. And what's interesting is we've been able to do that despite massive human rights violations by our military and within our own borders. Right? You know, it takes a lot. I mean, it takes really takes a lot to pull back the veil and kind of get us, get us off of our high horse or, or, or get us off of the moral high ground. Despite the fact that we've never had it, we've always been able to act as though we did. And Donald Trump is somehow finally managing to, to blow that away. To blow away and, the pretense that the United States the, is a good actor. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you for articulating. No, and I, think that's, I think that's very key. If you assume 
that the United States is always good and always in the right, then maybe Trump is somehow a, 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 a good thing? I, I don't understand, but that's, that's not the case. We've always been excellent at using institutions, at using concepts like human rights to look like we're always in the right. And it's people do not understand how important looking like you're in the right is because it's not military force that is going to keep Europe, you know, more or less playing along with our trade policy. It's not military force that's going to keep China as a paid up member of the international system. It's the idea that like, okay, you know, these guys, they seem okay. And it's a better than the alternative of anarchy. And by, by taking this like, oh, tough, tough approach, this, this is thrown away. This is discarded. And that's, that's the tremendous, tremendous danger of what the Trump administration is up to. Yeah. So do we want to... Well, it's fascinating. Do we want to look at this live chat? Were you talking about Robert Brown, who, who says, this is a great example of the idiocy of this approach. It says, uh, what is it? As Trump thumps the ball out of the park again, and you guys look more and more stupid, do Muslims apologize for the Yazidi sex slaves, the girl captive brides in Nigeria? You guys are weak. And I'm like, what does this guy even think? What does this guy even think we're talking about? I, I'm, it's it's just it's it's mystifying to me that that someone can think they're talking about politics and and foreign policy in a meaningful way and take that approach. I guess what that is is once again like just looking at what we hear about in CNN or Fox News or the New York Times, just looking very closely at you know policy in the Middle East, which is a sideshow. I don't understand. I guess, yeah, I guess people, I guess that's not very clear. I guess the ball is hidden very carefully that like what goes on in the Middle East might have had some broader geopolitical significance 25, 30 years ago when Saudi Arabia owned the oil markets. But that's, that's simply no longer the case. We are devoting more and more, and especially under Trump, more and more of our self-respect and ideas of valor and glory to this progressively less and less useful section of the world. It's, uh, I don't know. Sorry, I'm just rambling. Yeah, and I, I don't know. It seems, it seems, it seems like Mr. Robert Brown has sort of a, I don't know what it is about the internet, man. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, this, oh, this is actually, this is, this is a good, this is a, uh, this is actually a good preview. Uh, my, I'm going to end the holiday season talking about some of the comments that I get about Muslim, you know, the hit, well, here, maybe it's because Muslims have slaughtered 273 million people. Why would you apologize to followers of them? I'm not going to. So I'm going to be covering that a little bit, this this myth of the special evil of Muslim history videos coming up in the next couple of weeks. I love that it's really specific figure, you know, that, that 273 million people. It's, it's amazing that, that they can they can somehow, you know, we can't get good numbers for, for body counts uh, from Syria over the past five years. But this guy has told has, has come up with exactly 273 million people for the past 1500 years of Islamic history. Uh, and actually, that's almost certainly mostly based on a uh, figure for the Muslim conquests of India that assumes that there were like 600 million Indians 2000 years ago, which simply isn't mm. true. But anyway, sorry, I digress again. No, no problem. I don't know. Eventually, we'll be able to pull something out of this chat. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I think I think it might be worth talking about for a minute the ways, you know, specific ways in which we think Trump is diminishing this this very specific kind of power, you know, this this moral authority. And I mean, the, the, I think the first the first and most constant uh, way has been that, you know, even if Fox and Trump's base in the United States don't see his statements as xenophobic, 
you know, he knows a ton of black people. He's got a ton of black friends. He's got a ton of Jewish friends or whatever. You know, that's not convincing anybody else in the Western world. And in as much as it's become like the normal thing here in the United States, having a bumbling, senile racist in the White House and constantly on television all around the world, that's enough. You know, that's enough to diminish the moral authority that allows the United States to get other countries to come along, you know, on whatever the particular project is. Yeah, and that, that's, a, that's a good point. I mean, people really didn't like George Bush because he had sort of a Texas approach that, that was more powerful in the United States. But I mean, take any like sort of knee-jerk reaction that people in, uh, people in Europe or the broader world took to George W. Bush and like amplify that by like a thousand. I mean, you just just watching the guy talk, it's clear that there's just not much going on up here. And also that he's not too partial to people of color, unless they're athletes that stand for the national anthem. His, sort of his approach to, I think, women and people of color is, I think, something that resonates a lot with most of his older white voting base, is uh, that, of course, I'm not a racist. How could I... I don't have anything against these people as long as they do what they're supposed to do and know their place, which is for folks who were born after the, I don't know, 1960 or so is almost the definition of, of racism to believe that people of uh, certain classes and ethnicities are, are, are valuable to the extent that they know their place. Yeah. So yes, that's a very good point that just Trump himself is tremendously damaging. We're not we're working our way down a list of things that no just you know whatever whatever strikes you as this stuff that's I mean I've I've got a couple things here you know first and foremost is just because in as in as much as through gutting the State Department and in his own total ability to run an executive Donald Trump hasn't actually managed to do a whole lot of stuff except for the transfer of the embassy well the planned or announced transfer of the embassy but so statements. And the way he acts are one of the ways in which he diminishes U.S. moral authority. And I think the other big one is sort of uh, insanity. So uh, this might not be something that everybody knows, but feigned insanity at the top actually has kind of a pedigree in international relations in that Nixon and Kissinger during the Cold War were convinced, and I think they had a pretty good point, that if they could insinuate to the Russians or, or, or make the Russians believe that Nixon was unstable, that he was capable of anything, their brinksmanship would be all the more effective because the Russians would believe the threats because they believed Nixon capable of anything, right? And a couple of members of the Trump administration have, have made noises about that same thing, that Trump's somehow engaging in the same kind of politics. But the thing about the Nixon-Kissinger thing is, you know, Nixon was like maybe evil, but he was really smart. And Kissinger was maybe one of the smartest guys of the last century. Donald Trump is an idiot. And he hired only other idiots to work in his White House. And the other thing is the Nixon-Kissinger thing worked because they were looking at one adversary that they knew that was going to be analyzing everything they were going to do. And they did it with a plan to influence certain pieces on the board and to move them in certain ways. Donald Trump acting insane just, I don't know, for the world? That Yeah, no, that's not part of a cohesive, coherent diplomatic strategy. And, that, and I think that that's, that, that's exactly what I was going to say. That's a really key point. Sort of Nixon and Kissinger portraying themselves in Mad Men, in, as madmen in the context of this dual superpower relationship and where sort of most of the world was organized in a sort of binary fashion. Okay, that sort of made sense. But what, what the United States needs to do in the 21st century and for the next 
however long we can make it last, is convince the rest of the world that we're, uh, you know, mostly benign hegemon. Maybe you don't like us, maybe you don't respect us, but you're, you're content to let us stay in charge for a while. I mean, that's, that's U.S. interest as I see it. And that is not, the madman strategy has zero, zero application if that's what you're trying to do. If you're trying to convince the rest of the world that you're like a decent, you know, not too harmful hand on the tiller, convincing the rest of the world that you're fucking nuts is not helpful. Yeah. And the other thing which you mentioned earlier is that, you know, world instability, it's in general bad for everybody, but it's worst for whoever's trying to run the system and whoever's whoever's the most dependent on the rest of the world. And in as much as the US is the biggest player on the stage, we're also the most dependent on every other country staying intact because of trade, all sorts of, you know, all sorts of reasons. And something that Rob and I have mentioned in previous shows is that one of the things that keeps the world stable is countries in general, and the U.S. in particular, being predictable. Because there's this er example that everybody, that everybody gets if they take an international relations class, which is Iraq. At the end of the Iraq-Iran War and right before the invasion of Kuwait, where Iraq has a ton of debt from the Iran-Iraq War. And they had, Saddam Hussein has a conversation with a U.S. diplomat. And that diplomat accidentally gives Saddam the impression that the U.S. is giving them the green light to invade Kuwait and recoup their war debts. And then Saddam does it, right? Because he thinks it's going to be okay. And then the U.S. has to go into Iraq and, or into Kuwait and throw the Iraqis out. And the idea of the example is that if the U.S. can broadcast its intentions very clearly, its military might and economic might will induce other countries in the world to do what it wants without it having to engage either the military or the economy to coerce people. That is that if you lay out the laws of the land, most people will just line up behind those because it's easier. And if the laws of the land are an insane list of contradictory, racist, xenophobic directives or tweets or whatever, uh, that it's impossible for anyone to align with them. And I I think that that I I did a video on this recently. It's sort of like war is the problem that Washington, D.C. doesn't understand. And this isn't just a Trump problem. I mean, this is uh, obviously a Bush problem and an Obama problem who allowed people to convince him that it was a good idea to get involved in places like Libya and Syria. If you're if you're the, the guy on top, if you're the United States. But okay, let's take it the other way. If you're China, it doesn't really matter what happens to you, what what happens in Latin America. Like if, if there's instability there. China doesn't really care. If you're Iran, if there's instability in Southern Africa or between Japan and China, it doesn't really matter. But if you're the United States, instability anywhere has the potential to screw us, to screw us mightily. And it's, it's amazing that, uh, I mean, it's a very, very simple, people love looking at, uh, looking for really simple lessons from history, like don't get me started on fucking Graham Allison and the, the Thucydides trap. But this is, this is one of the most basic lessons from any sort of transition from like one system to the next is that it is war that brings it about. It is war that unseats the, the people on top. So it's, it's freaking crazy that people are considering it somehow positive that the United States is getting more involved in the Middle East and contributing to instability in more countries. It's freaking nuts. It, it makes uh, it makes no sense at all. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, looking at the chat again. Two things I want to clarify from the chat, or based on what it appears I'm reading out of the chat. 
One is that, in case it wasn't clear enough, yeah, when, when I talk about Trump's statements being part of what diminishes our moral authority abroad, I'm absolutely referring to the racism, the xenophobia, stuff he says about Jews, weird retweets, Mexicans being rapists and murderers. Yeah, all that stuff, guys. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. And the other thing is just, I don't know. I, 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 never mind. I don't think we actually need to address this other thing I was looking at. Yeah, we, we could, we could uh, I feel like when we, I feel like when we get to Israel, we end up talking about it for 45 minutes. So yeah, uh, yeah, we can probably, we can probably avoid that. But yeah, so we've got the racism, the xenophobia, also just Trump's attitude towards international institutions. It's like the John Birch Society or like the Breitbart Commons, Commons section is, is sitting in, in the office of the president now. So things like the WTO, things like the United Nations are treated as enemy organizations when they are our institutions. Uh, we wrote them. We run them. We essentially own them. And that, that, that just continues to bother me uh, deeply. And also they, they take concrete steps, or rather because it's the Trump administration, take concrete non-steps. There's the exact details escape me, but the World Trade Organization is, I think they have a judicial tribunal that is currently understaffed. The U.S. is, once again, it's the U.S. who gets to appoint these folks, and the U.S. just isn't doing it, which means that one of the central functions of the World Trade Organization is falling apart, just out of sheer, sheer Trumpian neglect, malign neglect. And it's, it's a really annoying thing to see. And I mean, we we should stay on this as long as we have stuff to talk about. But I've only I've only got like kind of one more topic or or whatever as far as Trump diminishing diminishing American power, which is that one of the ways in which we get people to follow along in terms of international institutions is by acting in good faith. And in the WTO and the you know the World Bank and the UN, we pretty much we pretty much don't act with good faith. But one thing we tend to is in bilateral treaties. Generally, we set up bilateral treaties because we're actually interested in them. And we generally abide by their whatever, you know, we abide by them. So there are two incredibly important international treaties in which we've we've begun to act in bad faith that I think are going to greatly diminish our ability to, to influence countries in the future. And those are the Iran nuclear deal and NAFTA. So Iran's Iran, everybody should know about by now, which is that Iran is abiding by the terms of the nuclear agreement. The U.S. largely was not. And on top of that, Donald Trump is decertifying the deal despite the fact that Iran is abiding by it. There's a couple more steps to go there before before the whole thing falls apart. But the big thing about that is, is if Donald Trump was legitimately trying to resolve the Korean situation, which I don't think he is, showing the Koreans that as soon as they make a nuclear deal, the second that it's advantageous for not the United States, but a president in the press or with his base or whatever to abrogate that deal, he's going to do it that very second. And that, so it means we're never going to, we're never going to get a similar nuclear deal. And the other thing is I'm not particularly concerned that the U.S. might not be able to involve countries in large, you know, pro-corporate international trade agreements, but it's not super high profile. But the Trump administration is trying to renegotiate NAFTA, uh, and there are trilateral talks going on between us, the Canadians, and the Mexicans. And despite the fact that, you know, Canada's a real country, I live in Mexico, and it's not. Despite the fact that even the Mexicans showed up having uh, done their homework, the people that the Trump administration sent didn't have any idea what they're talking about. Not not just in the sense that they weren't trained economists, but they like they hadn't read any of the existing provisions of NAFTA. They didn't understand what was actually enforced. They didn't understand how to change it. And this stuff um, is tremendously, tremendously complex, like things about rules of origin, things about it, it's it's tremendous. Trade legislation has gotten very, very complex. It's not just about tariffs anymore. 
And uh, the idea that Trump would just send some rubes who have no idea what they're talking about is. And the other thing is, so, you know, I'm not really sure that on the whole NAFTA was good for Mexico, especially. It definitely wasn't good for auto manufacturing in the United States. But the thing of it is, is we're at a new equilibrium. We're at a new stable normal under the terms of NAFTA. And when you tinker with those as an ignorant moron, what you're going to do is you're going to hurt a lot of people and like very immediately and very directly. And in as much as nobody's paying attention to what's going on with NAFTA negotiations, that has so much more ability to hurt us as a country than anything that Iran's going to do. Oh, absolutely. I mean, NAFTA is that's and that, I think that gets to the sort of central point that I was making. It's like what actually matters in geopolitics for the United States, for people's lives in the United States, for business, for whatnot, is absolutely not anything that's happening in the Middle East anymore. I mean, in a couple like disaster scenarios, like Saudi Arabia falls to pieces and nobody gets any oil anymore. Okay, yeah, that could potentially be a problem. But but those are disaster scenarios that we are making more likely. What is tremendously important is this NAFTA negotiation. It's a complex, arcane, boring sounding thing for which the Trump administration has a really dumb approach. And if they do manage to blow that up, the effects will be infinitely larger than anything that's happening in the Middle East. And that's just another example of how Trump is screwing with things. And it's also fascinating. There nobody other than Donald Trump and a few superannuated, superannuated dipshits. Like what, what is the Department of Commerce guy? The like sort of 85 year old. Uh, I can't remember. His name escapes me. But it, it's just these clown who have certain knee-jerk approaches to trade deals are really the only people that have any interest in reevaluating NAFTA or in getting rid of NAFTA. Everybody in business in the United States is just like, for the love of God, don't touch it or, you know, actually improve it. Whereas despite that, we've got this belligerent moron uh, trying to trying to destroy it. Um, and it's really the only thing that's keeping him in check now is that also the entire Republican Party and every business donor to the Republican Party wants to preserve NAFTA. But there's no guarantee that that'll last. So like I said, that was my last thing. But just again, to address the chat, it's so Robert Brown, who I'm not sure is necessarily a, a positive influence, asks, how do we know that Iran is abiding by the terms of the nuclear deal? Well, under the terms of the deal, there's a more thorough pervasive inspections regime set up under the IAEA, which is, again, one of those international institutions that we pretty much run than has ever been set up in any country ever before. And the IAEA has said, yeah, they're doing everything. They're doing everything they said they were going to do. And also Trump's adults in the room, like uh, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, Secretary Secretary of State uh, Rex Tillerson, uh, for however long he's with us, have all also maintained and said that Iran is honoring all the conditions. Once again, Nikki Haley, uh, the former governor of North Carolina and our ambassador, the United Nations, weighed in to sort of claim, and I think this is something that you'll find on Breitbart and uh, also in a lot of standard neocon places, is that Iran's missile program somehow screws with the terms of the deal. And no, it freaking does not. It's about nukes. Uh, The deal is about nukes. And Iran has been complying completely with that. They happen to live in a neighborhood where, you know, the United States uses very belligerent language towards them and occupies uh, two or three countries on their borders. So yes, uh, they want to have the same sorts of missile technology that other places do. This is not something that was covered in the JCPOA in the Iran deal. So no, when somebody in the most people, any honest person in the Trump administration emphasizes that Iran is complying with the deal, 
And anybody who tells you they're not is inventing stuff. They're making stuff up. Yeah. All right. So I, I haven't got anything else. I mean, I'm sure there's many, many other things, but I haven't got anything else uh, laid out for, you know, specifics, specifics on how Donald Trump is diminishing this particular kind of power. I, I mean, I think, I think we've made it, I think, pretty clear. And I, once again, there is, if you're so, I think there's sort of standard objections. So it's like, well, he defeated ISIS. So it's like he defeated ISIS by using Obama's approach and taking off all the governors that made Obama's approach slightly safer. Basically, uh, might have actually been the right gamble and said that, okay, we're just going to go whole hog with supporting the, the Syrian Kurds, no matter what Turkey thinks. And, and yes, then, of course, as could have been done at any point during the Obama administration, the ISIS issue was resolved very, fairly quickly. That, you know, actually might, might, have been, might have been the right decision, but the idea that there's something new and, and, and clever here is something I disagree with. What I completely disagree with is the fact that we've now got 2,000 troops in Syria, we've now got more troops in Iraq, more troops in Yemen. Uh, the, I don't have the exact figures at my fingertips, but this is not, as I think our discussion, our foregoing discussion will reveal, this is not a sign of strength. This is a sign of letting the military do whatever it wants. And there are no good military solutions to these issues, especially in Yemen, where our military is very much a part of the problem. So yeah, I just want to deal with those sort of standard objections. So yeah, you got to focus on more than the Middle East, because the Middle East is getting less and less important every day. Yeah. And it, just a thing to add there. Or two things. One is that Robert Brown, if if you're not just a troll in the chat and you really and you really believe that Donald Trump is somehow increasing U.S. power abroad, please lay that out for us and we'll talk about whatever you got. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Robert Brown, please tell us what Trump has done that has improved Donald Trump's the, the U.S. position and power and prestige. Actually, anybody, anybody in the chat who I mean, if there's a objection we haven't dealt with, please lay it out. Yeah. Uh, please let us know. And we'll, we'll talk about it right now. Before we get into the, the promised second half of our discussion, yeah. which is the question, is Donald Trump's destruction of U.S. power a good thing? But before we get to that, let's fully establish that Donald Trump is destroying U.S. power. Who's yeah. got an objection? So one other thing that you said that I think that I think is worth repeating every day until we're dead, uh, <laughs> maybe soon, is there are no good military solutions. So there may be times... And I think they're pretty rare when the only solution to a problem is military. That, there, that may exist in some, in some hypothetical world. But military solutions are never good. You know, as soon as you got people shooting at each other, you're committing moral wrongs. And it's not just the use of U.S. military forces. It's using CIA or other funding to bring about military conflicts. It's never yeah. Yeah. A, good, a good response. And, Loga Cool Extreme, I guess, says, what about World War II? Yeah, okay, you can have good wars, but the second a war begins, civilians are getting killed, people are dying, which is just always a bad thing. Actually, I have have an answer to that, actually. Yeah, sorry, real quick. Moral wrongs are happening the second you're getting into a conflict, and you're spending just so much money. Because we think about Tomahawk missiles and all, all the stuff that the U.S. spends on that is so expensive... But even putting one boot on the ground, well, two boots on the ground anywhere is a million dollars a year. Base price. Military solutions are always bad solutions, morally and financially. Um, there's two. Uh, so the, uh, to that World War II question, actually, I don't have to go back to World War II to find something to which there was only a military solution. ISIS. 
ISIS is something to which there was only a military solution. But ISIS exists because, or existed because of two military solutions that the United States had chosen to take. ISIS would not have been initially established if it weren't for the botched, or really the existing invasion of Iraq. And ISIS would not have gotten the opening that it needed to make its incredible push in 2014 if it had not been for the military solution that the United States was uh, fostering against Assad. So ISIS was yes, and then I think that's actually the case. And this might go a little, uh, a little off, a little too far off in the fever swamps for John, but I would argue that's the case with World War II as well. I've written at some length about how pretty sure that if we hadn't intervened in World War One, which was a conflict with no good people, there was no, there were no good guys in in World War One. There were a bunch of imperial bastards who decided to kill themselves, and the Germans basically won this conflict. And then the United States jumped in. And if we hadn't done that, there would be no Hitler. So yes, that's, that's in the nature of military solution, is that they actually make, once you go in and break things, you can't unbreak things easily. And so that's the story of us in Iraq, is uh, you can't pick out, oh, well, ISIS, of course. I mean, obviously, you're going to want to bomb the shit out of ISIS, but the reason ISIS exists is because of Iraq. Obviously, you're going to want to put together, do anything you can to defeat Hitler in World War II. But the reason that that problem exists is because we chose to get involved in European power games in World War I. There's a reason that you're, there are infinite numbers of World War II movies. I mean, you turn on the television right now, and if you flip through it, you'll find some kind of appreciation of World War I. Uh, sorry, World War II. And there is nothing on World War I except Wonder Woman this year, weirdly. And they just sort of mapped how we feel about World War II onto World War I, which was very wasn't weird. That, wasn't that super messed up? They were trying to like super messed up. World like, War I Germans. That was super weird. Yeah, they made like Ludendorff this like Nazi super criminal. I'm like, you know, like, I mean, he wasn't a great guy. He was a bit of a militarist schmuck. <laughs> we're apparently big fans of that kind of guy in the United States now. But uh, yeah, he wasn't a crazy Nazi. Uh, so yes, even World War II, which was absolutely... Uh, worthwhile use of military force has its roots in a unwise use of military force. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you can you can say World War II was a good war while also acknowledging the terror bombing of Europe, the fire bombing of Tokyo, the two atom bombs and the people that died. You know, it's OK for a good war to still be a bad thing. Yeah, uh, for sure. But, oh, God. OK, so Robert Brown. Stuff in the chat. Yeah, Robert Brown has weighed in. Six trillion added to the value of U.S. stocks since Trump came to power. Islam had a shot fired across its bows. Supreme Court upheld Trump's Muslim the wrong bows. Hmm. It's the wrong, wrong bows. Unless unless we're flying across the tree of Islam and not the boat. I you know I, I was just going to assume I'm I'm not going to light into this guy for his inability to spell. So I, I think those are worth uh, dealing with. Okay, the Supreme Court upheld Trump's Muslim vigilance. This bugs me because that's absolutely not true. The Supreme Court did eventually, in a very guarded and caveated way, um, say that Trump's ban could go forward. However, if you compare that to what he initially proposed in January that had all of us out protesting at airports, it is nothing like what was eventually approved by the Supreme Court. I think this is, I mean, this, is, this isn't just a Breitbart problem. I think that's been misreported by everybody. I mean, if I'm wrong, but the Supreme Court also didn't approve the new ban. It just said that it couldn't be stopped by an injunction. It actually has to go through the courts to be stopped, right? 
And also, I think it was there was something to do with the fact that the initial ban was time limited. So yeah, it, it just it bugged me that that wasn't okay. So six trillion added to the value of U.S. stocks since Trump came to power. This uh, this is fascinating to me. So I spent, uh, as I said, I, I had a not 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 a Republican, but a much more conservative uh, past, and I, I've read read decades of interpretation uh, talking about how you couldn't possibly give Bill Clinton credit for the economic boom during the Clinton years. That was all Ronald Reagan and what he did, you know, like, you know, you know, the you got to understand this is from conservatives, you know, you got to understand economies don't work immediately like that. And the reason the economy did so well under Clinton, that was all Reagan. And then to immediately like from from March, like two months into the Trump presidency, to instantly assume that everything that happens to the to the stock market is due to his actions is wrong. I actually, so this is interesting. I differ with you here. I think the stock market is 100% going up because of Trump. It's going up because corporate investors are expecting the sell-offs of public property to the private sector. So if you look at Chile right after Pinochet takes over, their stock market explodes because people are super happy to buy up all the great stuff that the state has built, sell it off to private industry. So that's but it's, not, it's, well, it's not. It's not privatization. It's the corporate. It's the corporate tax cut we just got. I mean, there's not a yeah, ton. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I'm saying. Expectation of stuff like that and stuff like the corporate tax cut, all of which benefits the investor class. That's certainly true. But uh, it's not doing anything for me, and it's not doing anything for the vast majority of working people in the United States. So, and as much as yeah, Trump's created this sort of weird idiot bubble in in the stock market it's not doing anybody any good uh except with the people who were already doing really well so he's right uh but wrong at the same time mm, i i think uh giving a sitting president who's been there for eight months credit for a for an expansion doesn't make a lot of sense though there is no disputing that it did start with his election as he said of that expectation of success also the 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 idea that six trillion has been added to the value of u.s stocks i don't see that as particularly sustainable I mean, who knows? But uh, I think we've got quite a correction coming, and it'd be interesting watching. Islam has had a shot fired across its bows. Uh, how yeah, should I get that one? How? How? How exactly? You mean when when Trump, for his first international visit, went to Saudi Arabia and did a sword dance and talked about how uh, he was totally on board with the home of the ideology of 9/11 being our big ally and how we were going to get on board with them further? Like, was that shooting um, shooting a blast across Islam's bows? I don't, I don't really. Okay, I think Kim now shitting himself. Yeah, no, I think Kim is pretty. I think um, Kim is very happy with uh, yes. the way things have been going. Delighted, in fact. All right. Well, so I think that, I think that's a good segue, along with the stuff we were talking about about military conflict, to this second thing that I had in this first part of the show, which is that, in as much as our diplomatic power is certainly declining, that is our power to to bring other people along in in collective projects, our power to harm hasn't diminished at all. You know, our military power and the sort of negative power that grows out of the military, and North Korea is a great example here. Because you and I have talked in like every show we've ever done about the way that U.S. threats, U.S. grandstanding, this kind of stuff that you uh, that Donald Trump is doing towards North Korea helps out exactly one constituency, which is the dictators in power in the other country. The prime beneficiary, which is why we don't agree with the, with the idea that Kim is shitting himself, is that the prime beneficiary of Donald Trump's rhetoric on North Korea is Kim Jong-un. It reinforces his position in his country. And we're 
able to do that no matter how worthless we are diplomatically. You know, we're able to be the big bad for Kim, for the mullahs in Iran, for the conservative elements in Cuba, and laterally for uh, Maduro in Venezuela. And when, when we talk about, you know, Trump destroying U.S. power, we're not, we're not saying he's taking it down to zero. I think we're saying that he's taking it from a, from a higher point to a much, much lower point. I think it was Alibaba, I think, said that the U.S. will be number one for decades. And I think that's absolutely true. I think economically, in terms of military, what have you, like we will be. I've said over and over in my videos that I think this idea that there's some imminent U.S. collapse is, is, is fantasy. The question is, what happens after that? What happens beyond that? Like, if we, are we going to do what the British Empire did, which was get progressively more and more violent, more and more dangerous to the rest of the world until the rest of the world just sort of says enough? If that's your goal, I mean, if, that's, if that's your patriotic approach, wanting a tough military, then I don't really see you as much of a patriot. Uh, it, it's, 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 uh, sorry, I'm speaking to the, to the general. Um, I, th- I think something that I desperately want to happen is I want this system that we have built, that we wrote, to persist and to continue. Um, and if we choose to make everything just about the military and hold on, grasp on to that military power and build more bases and, and get more and more involved in that, which is exactly what the Trump administration has been doing, despite promising not to on the campaign trail, then we'll destroy the chance of a sort of lasting, peaceful existence under U.S. institutions, which I would like. Um, and I think I'm, I'm watching that possibility slip away. It's not like, because Trump is president in four to eight years, you know, China's going to take New York or something. Heck no. No, 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 of course not. It's just we're turning ourselves into sort of a sad knee-jerk rogue state, um, sort of like Russia, actually, uh, except, you know, 10 to 20 times more powerful. And that, I think, is a tremendous loss of power and potential. I'm not talking about us just sort of disappearing off the world stage, because we can't. We can't do that. But I am talking about us falling and the sort of potential and opportunity for the world of a sort of lasting peace, something that lasts decades or centuries rather than, you know, another couple decades. Is, is slipping away fairly quickly. And I think that's, that's a tragedy. And I mean, in terms of power to harm, it's, it's not just rhetorically. You know, it's not just this power to use rhetoric in a negative way, you know, that reinforces the people we'd least, we'd least like to reinforce abroad. At a certain point, especially when the military seems to be the, the chief voice in the White House, or as somebody pointed out, the military-industrial complex, not your business, and at a time when there are fewer and fewer strong diplomatic voices to oppose that military voice, it becomes a very real possibility that we actually use our military in a harmful way. And I don't know if you saw this, but there was an article out yesterday that Trump's directed the Pentagon to begin planning a quote-unquote bloody nose attack to dissuade the North Koreans from, I don't know, tweeting at, tweeting at Donald Trump, you know, whatever it is we're trying to dissuade them from doing. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's insane in the most literal, literal possible interpretation of the word insane. So I, yeah. I, 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 there is no military solution to North Korea. But if, the, if, if you imagine there is one, what you should be talking about is an instant overwhelming sort of, what would they call it, Colin Powell doctrine, like take over the country, bomb every conceivable site imaginable immediately. That's the only thing you're kind of... But, Give him a bloody nose. That's, I think, uh, something that uh, isn't emphasized enough about North Korea is that the demilitarized zone is, what, 20, 40 
miles from Seoul, from the capital of South Korea. Uh, so if it looks to North Korea as if some kind of military, military thing is starting and happening, then they can just start shelling our South Korean ally and uh, just start shelling a, a city of what? Oh, gosh, it, it's a mega city, right? Five, 10 million people. And also, it's not, I mean, obviously, any kind of actions against the city are, are horrific and whatnot. But um, this is not what we've been doing in the Middle East. Uh, we're sort of, you know, semi-targeted approaches that only kill 10,000 people. They're just going to start shooting mortars at high rises in a uh, one of the most developed cities in the world. Uh, so, yeah, the idea of a fucking bloody nose attack in North Korea is nuts. Yeah. But the, the other thing, the other thing with North Korea or with Iran or whatever you want to, whatever you want to, you want to look at, but especially North Korea is, you know, there's a case uh, for somebody living in in Iraq in 2003 who wants to take up arms against the American invader for real enmity with an American soldier because we have an all-volunteer military, you know? Those guys chose to join up and, and fight abroad. You look at North Korea, which has, what, like like the third largest standing army in the world, something like that? That's a country where all of the population has been indoctrinated. And if it hasn't been indoctrinated, it has at least been forced into service of the state. A state run by perhaps a madman, somebody certainly less mad than our own uh, head of state. And any any military solution to North Korea is going to imply the deaths of tens of millions of people. I think we like to think about it in terms of a U.S. foreign policy problem or whatever, but tens of millions of dead people. And that's, you know, when you, you can be blasé about bloodying the North Korean nose, but, you know, that's a lot of, that's a lot of blood to have on your hands, right? Yeah, for sure. I don't want to get it too too off into the weeds on North Korea. Um, so I think we should we should get to something that I, I have been thinking about seriously. I think I've kind of discarded it. Is this potentially a good thing? I mean, I know you've got a podcast that documents in great detail the horrors that have come about as a result of U.S. foreign policy. Is if you look at this, if you look at this incredible diminishing in U.S. soft power, is it is it possible to see that as a good thing? Yeah, well, so in that in, in in this one sense, yeah, you know, I think I think a diminished ability of the United States to pretend that it's acting in good faith as it supports odious regimes abroad, I think that could be a good thing. I'm not sure that a diminished diplomatic power actually does that, though. But absolutely does because if it gets to the point where People are willing, I think it's, it, it'll be instructive what's happening in the United Nations today, as I think most of the General Assembly is going to be opting to condemn the uh, U.S. recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. I mean, if it gets to the point where people are no longer as willing to play along and people uh, start looking to China more for leadership on these issues, I don't think that uh, that's certainly not going to be the case for anybody on China's border. But I would say that in, in Europe right now, people are thinking, well, shit. I mean, obviously, we're going to maintain our military relationship and this, that, and the other thing with the United States. But when it comes to specific policy initiatives that the United States wants us to get behind, um, you know, we now have more options. And this, this just sort of degree of insanity means that they can start, start flirting with China more. And uh, China's a little bit nervous, nerve-wracking, because, you know, they have a future as a sort of a hyperpower, but start flirting with Russia more. 
Why not? Once again, that won't happen on Russia's border, but I think we're already seeing movement in France and Germany uh, towards Russia from as a direct result of Trump's approach to Europe. So uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that, I think it absolutely impacts our ability to do whatever we want. Well, so uh, what, what Rob was trying to throw to me a minute ago was something that we've talked about, I think, in, in almost every one of these shows. And what is certainly kind of the thesis statement of my podcast, which is that American foreign policy, I think on the whole, is, has really been bad for the world. But it's been bad in very particular and outside of the countries involved, less obvious ways than, than the way it's been good, than ways in which it's been good. And, uh, and there was something I wanted to bring up for this show, for, very, for this exact part of this live show, in which, in which maybe, maybe I was thinking about arguing that a diminishment of U.S. power abroad could, could have been a good thing. And it's this quote uh, that I came across in my senior year of college when I was writing a uh, senior thesis about some pretty esoteric uh, stuff in like the last 20 years of the Cuban regime. But anyway, it's this quote from an interview that Fidel Castro gave to Playboy in 1985, the second of two Playboy interviews, uh, which, which if anybody doesn't know, and I don't know why anyone would know anymore, the Playboy interview used to be like a pretty serious institution. And the people they sent down to interview Castro, it was like one congressman, two senators, and like two or three pretty serious journalists. And nobody actually employed by Playboy. But anyway, they take like three whole days of tape and they cut it down to an article that I think is like 10,000 words long. It's like it's as long as a short book. But Castro says this, quote, I wonder, is there any fascist regime in the past 40 years that has not been an ally of the United States? In Spain, the Franco regime. In Portugal, the Salazar regime. In South Korea, the fascist military. In Central America, Somoza, the military dictatorships in Guatemala and El Salvador. In Stroessner, the military dictatorships in Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil, as well as the Duvalier regime. I don't know of any reactionary fascist state that has not been a close ally of the United States, unquote. And to that, we could add, I don't know, whatever else you want. You could add Saudi Arabia. You could add Egypt. You could add... I don't know, man. I think I don't, I don't, I'm not really going to call Fidel Castro a... Uh... Uh, what's the uh, an impartial observer in this? I think. Well, I absolutely do not dispute that we supported a bunch of evil, evil bastards. It's the 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 fact that we're still supporting them today, outside of the context of the Cold War, that bothers me. And the thing about it is, I mean, the thing that made the quote powerful for me at the time was I was much less of a leftist, and it blew me away that somebody that I thought I disagreed with on principle on pretty much everything said something so true and so damning about U.S. foreign policy. And moreover, something that I hadn't really been educated about in my time studying exclusively foreign policy in D.C. But the thing about it is, in as much as I think he's right, and in as much as there's a whole other list of countries that we were involved in doing bad stuff, like, for example, Iran, I'm not sure that a diminishing of our diplomatic power necessarily will make it that much harder for us to keep doing exactly that, you know? I'm not sure that Hosni Mubarak in, in Egypt needed to respect our moral authority to keep taking money and arms from us. You know, it's pretty obvious that the Saudis don't. They're happy to receive whatever it is that we're willing to give, despite the fact that Donald Trump is out there disparaging Muslims on the day to day. So, you know, I'd like to be able to argue that maybe maybe Donald Trump shrinking or diminishing or whatever our, our, our leadership role in the world is a good thing. You know, trying to find that silver lining to a pretty gross situation but I'm not, I'm not sure there is one. Uh, no, I'm honestly not sure either, though my thought on this, I've been pleasantly surprised, actually, by how well things have held together 
in the in the face of the United States. I think my, my I mean, my my approach. I'm, I'm becoming a bit of a globalist, and I, I sort of look forward to the day when these institutions can sort of restrain all negative actors, you know, be it Russia, China, or the United States. And I, th I, I do feel like I've, I've seen the beginnings of that. I've seen the beginnings of sort of a broader international system that, yes, it's uh, definitely a, a very neoliberal uh, institution, which you might, might not agree with, has neoliberal uh, characteristics. But, you know, just sort of, and I know it's not something to be taken particularly seriously or sincerely, but just the Chinese leader going to Davos and talking about how he's going to be the leader when it comes to climate change and free trade and watching, I, honestly watching the way that the world seems to be rallying to whine about this Jerusalem move. It, it does lead me to believe that it, it's like maybe that system, it's not there yet, but, but I'm, I'm beginning to see the outlines of a true international system that, that can sort of gang up on folks gang up on great powers like uh, the United States or China. And uh, I like that. I like that a lot. But I don't think, uh, but I'm, I'm, I guess for very different reasons, I don't think we're there yet. I think the institutions have that weight. Uh, what's interesting about that is it wouldn't really be that hard. And I wonder why more, or that expensive, why more states in Latin America or Europe or gosh, even some states in Africa now aren't, aren't chipping in more. Uh, to international institutions, because you know, as, as of this point, I mean, Nikki Haley and Trump—they might be uh, thugs with their approach, but it is true that the United States still picks up the bill for a lot of this stuff. But so, for sort of smaller countries that have sort of made it work uh, to a degree under the Washington consensus, you know, like Chile, for example, or a lot of countries in Europe, a lot of countries in Asia, like why don't they put more money into? Uh, these institutions, because these institutions, despite the fact that they were written by the United States and have functioned thus far to preserve U.S. power, there's a real potential there to, to use those institutions to constrain all the large powers. And that's, that's something I'm very hopeful about. I don't think we're there yet, but I don't know. Yeah. And I mean, if we're talking about, you know, uh, negatives of a loss of or about, I, I don't know, negatives of what's going on with the Trump administration internationally. You know, in the so in the first part of the show, I was saying that international multilateral institutions have been extremely effective in allowing the U.S. to impose its will on the rest of the world. And I think a lot of that influence has been negative. But like, like I think Rob does, I have great hope, or maybe I had at one point great naive hope, for international institutions. You know, I'm one of those people that gets gets weepy about the death of the League of Nations, you know, this first great attempt to outlaw war. And I think I think there's there's some, you know, maybe we're in the darkest timeline, but there's there's some reality out there in which the United Nations worked. You know, to the extent that international institutions work, they work because we all maintain the fantasy that they are what they say they are, you know, that the UN isn't run by the Security Council or that the IMF isn't controlled from Washington. And when Donald Trump gets up to disparage the only great collective projects of the human race, it makes it that much more unlikely and that much farther in the future that they'll ever be what they say they are. I got to I got to disagree with that, actually, because he's such a comic book villain of a moron that he actually might inspire people to, to sort of cleave to these institutions anymore. I think his creation of the fiction, and it is a fiction, that these are, it is a fiction today, 
that these institutions are somehow opposed to U.S. interests, his creation of that fiction could actually um, develop, lead to what he's talking about, which is a point where these institutions are more funded by other other powers and are more representative of what the the world as a whole actually wants. I think that's I think that's a real I think that's a real possibility. And uh, if I were sitting in I don't know South Korea or Poland or Chile, I, I'd, I'd take a look at what the promise you know maybe not how they actually work, but what the promise of these international institutions are and realize that if we do fall into what Trump seems to be angling for and certainly what would be the case under you know broader influence for Russia or China that if we do fall back into a place where it's you know great powers struggling against each other that's all that matters they lose they lose big so I, I almost wonder if Trump's comic book villain nature might inspire more buy-in to these institutions you think there's any possibility of that yeah, I mean, I guess maybe, but I think I think what needs to happen. Yeah, I, I think you got a point, right? I, th- I think it's possible that what you're describing uh, could be a process that plays out. But as it seems to me that as long as the guy that's doing what Trump is doing is in charge of one of the vetoes on the UN Security Council, I think it makes it a, difficult for any of that to develop. You know what I mean? Mm. But it, but it, it's fascinating, actually, and this is just another. I just think about that. I don't know. Is that the first time it's happened? The the resolution on Jerusalem, the Security Council resolution, where the U.S. vetoed it essentially, but it was fourteen to one against the United States. Has that ever happened before? I mean, actually, I'm sure it's happened with a number of Israel resolutions, but actually, I'm not sure. I, I just don't know my diplomatic. No, I think I think usually we're able to bully some of the other people on the. Yeah. I think it's almost always going, especially on Israel Palestine issues. I think it's almost always going to be. A fourteen to one, and then we we have to go bully some other parties to come along with us. I think you might be right. It might it might be the first time. Yeah, and that's uh, that. I mean, to actually see in the United Nations in the Security Council. I mean, that's the position that usually Russia and China. Well, actually, when Russia and China get it together to veto something that everybody else wants, they've got two normally. So it's it's actually kind of uh, heartening in a way to see that just just unified condemnation. I mean, it's terrifying from the perspective of someone in the United States who cares about the continuation of U.S. power. But it does prompt, it does sort of, it does place doubts in my mind. It's, it's, uh, it, 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 it's like, well, maybe, you know, we can do without U.S. power. And that gets back to my libertarian roots. That, I mean, that sounds fantastic if the U.S. could just sort of pull back and, and uh, the world would continue to operate. I absolutely don't think we're there yet. But I don't know. I mean, there's just a, just, a, just a dash of hope. But I would actually, it, having thought about it more and read, I've been reading a lot about the 19th century British Empire run up to World War One now. And if we can get to a point where U.S. power fades and it fades into this broader system with buy-in and, and consequences and, and something of the whole world, then fantastic. That's, that is the desired result. What I see with Trump acting out in this way at this point so early in the process is I see a more likely return to multipolarity. So multiple poles of power uh, throughout the world. So you've got sort of the, the United States getting more aggressive about its interests, China getting more aggressive about its interests. And you've already got this kind of shit starting. Like there is a new scramble for Africa that nobody's talking about yet. Famously, the scramble for Africa was when with no economic rationale, 
most of the powers of Europe tried to divide Africa up and brought about a number of horrific results. But we've got that happening in Africa right now as well. You've got China, you know, piling in economically, and you've got the United States piling in militarily, supposedly uh, supposedly dealing with Islamic radicalism, but not really. And so that's, that kind of shit is terrifying. Because if you look back into a multipolar structure, even if you look back to the Cold War, and you'd, you'd pointed out all these horrific folks that we supported, all these fascist dictatorships or whatnot, if you, even if you just go back to there, if you go back to even a, a, a two-pole world, U.S. versus China, then all of a sudden, you've got every little dipshit civil war somewhere turns into a proxy war, and the world gets much, much worse. And that's, that's why I'm not yet ready for U.S. power to diminish the way that it is under Donald Trump. I think that we're not, these institutions aren't strong enough to maintain peace and prosperity without the U.S. as number one, as a not respected, but a, a tolerated number one. And I think Trump is dealing with that. So my answer to the question, you know, is Donald Trump's destruction of U.S. power a good thing would be no, no, not yet. So Any thoughts on that? there's, there's, no, I, I don't. Well, not particularly. No, uh, I mean, I'm more I'm more in the boat of uh, not your business that, um, you know, multi multipolar systems tend to be pretty unstable. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, you know, trying to scry into the next century, especially especially given that I'm, I'm much more pessimistic about climate change than you are. Mm. It's like it looks I mean, it all looks dark to me, but dark in a way that's difficult to perceive. You know, mm. I still maintain I'm an optimist. I think things are world is getting better all the time. I, I think that to the extent that Trump's presidency can be instructive, I think it has definitely underlined the way that a number of things are broken in the United States and, and the world at large. Uh, it could be a teachable moment. And uh, if it actually does encourage the rest of the world to uh, start valuing these institutions more, then, hey, you know, maybe, it, maybe it's exactly what the world needs. That's a tremendously, I mean, that's, that's looking for a very thin silver lining around a pretty horrifically large cloud. Well, I, I tell you what, I might, I might actually, and I'm going to need your expertise on this, but there might actually be one positive international relations thing coming out of the Trump administration. I think it's a bit of an accident, but so it, it came out in the news yesterday or two days ago that some Trump proxy had announced that the administration's official policy on Syria was now that Bashar al-Assad is good to stay in until the next national elections in that country. And what it sounds like to me is that we're getting on board with a plan by the powers who are actually managing the conflict, uh, that is Russia and Iran, where they, they may have found a way to get Bashar al-Assad out to end the civil war and to do it reasonably soon. Oh, I don't think, now, I, don't, I, don't, I don't buy that Assad's going anywhere, but... No? My, my impression was that perhaps they'd worked out some sort of thing where he gets to stay on long enough to pretend that he's been voted out normally and then and then retire to peaceful exile in you know Switzerland. Yeah, maybe the Russians think they have that, but I'd be surprised if the Iranians were on board. I don't know. I honestly I haven't I haven't been following Syria as closely as I should. Um, I'm touched you'd consider I have expertise. But I do have to say that Trump and I have said also that Trump has been fantastic for Syria. He, in a very knee-jerk way, it's, it's occasionally helpful to have an idiot who's a president. My understanding, or at least apocryphally, the, the leak or the rumor was that somebody um, showed him a clip 
of one of our moderate opposition uh, decapitating a child. And he said, what the fuck? Why are we supporting that? So he ended Timber Sycamore, the CIA program that destroyed Syria, essentially, in my reading of it. And yeah, that, I mean, that, that is helpful. The fact that he's decided to end our straightforward partnership with Al-Qaeda and affiliates in Syria is fantastic. It's good for Syria and it's uh, good for long-term potential uh, for peace. I had not, I'm not aware of that, what you're talking about. And that's great. And that's, I think the extent to, and yes, that actually should be credited to Trump. But I think also that program was such a manifest failure that, well, actually, no, uh, I do think that if, if we had a Clinton presidency, there'd be a much higher chance that we'd be in a shooting war in Syria right now. And that is, that is something worth noting. And that is something that Trump has done right. But once again, we're talking about one country in one region rather than, which is not something that despite what our media our media's approach to things, that's not a luxury that the United States has to focus on one country and one region because of the Trump policy in the rest of the Middle East and actually in Syria, because I, my understanding is now we've got 2,000 boots on the ground in Syria and they're just going to, I don't know, sit there until they start a war with Iran. So I can't call Trump a uniformly positive influence on, uh, on Syria, but yes, his ending of that CIA program that consistently armed al-Qaeda. And it's interesting, there's a report, I'm still going through it, that also makes it I don't know, I, I, gotta, I, I can't quite make the claim yet, but also probably was initially, you know, before 2014, uh, was arming ISIS as well. So that's great that Trump ended that program. Sorry if I'm babbling. No, no. I mean, I, I don't know how much credit's due there. You know, it seems like an accident more than like intelligent policymaking to me. But in as much as it's happening, good thing. Yeah. And the other, the other thing to say there is uh, Rob and I, we don't like Bashar al-Assad. We're not Assad supporters. Uh, we don't go out rally for him. It's just you get you got to end a bad war that's not going anywhere, and it's not going anywhere uh, really fast to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dead people. Uh, um, so. uh, Bashar al-Assad is an evil, terrible man, and we should have done everything sensible in our power to get him out of power. But what we did was not sensible, and military solutions, once again, are never... Uh, there have been many figures like Bashar al-Assad in 20th century history. And what has worked over and over and over again is you bribe them. You get in bed with them economically, uh, you get them rich, and then they get voted out or they fade away. That's how you deal with a mass murderer. Or you can create some kind of military involvement that destroys the country for decades to come, which is what we did in Syria, uh, which sucks. Okay. Um I don't know if I have anything specifically on the topics of the show. I think uh, I pretty much shot, shot my wad as well. Uh, should we uh, go to questions? Does anybody have questions? And we can look through the chat, but if anybody's got something really they really want us to talk about, definitely put it in there uh, again. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we, we can't. So we, we only see what's directly in front of us. So if you've got a question, please repeat yourself and uh, throw it in there and we will perhaps deal with it. Well, there's, there's one from, I think, Not Your Business from way back, which is, what do we say about the assertion that U.S. power has been more benevolent than other superpower systems? Oh, that's interesting. That's actually, I'm, I'm, what, have, you got, have, you, have you got an answer? You can go first. No, take a, take a crack at it, because I got some thoughts, but I think I need to, I need to put them in a row. So I've, uh, this is something that I've been looking at in great detail. And yes, I think that the U.S. has, in, to some extent, been more benevolent than further than former great power systems. And it's 
part of this I would like, and I think there is something to it, at least we, the way that we see ourselves, even today, there is no conscious ideology of empire in the United States. Like the US people aren't really that interested in running around the world and telling people what to do. That is what the US government has done, uh, absolutely, for the past 70 years. But for the US people, you know, we're about freedom and da, 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 da. this almost never translates into the actual US policy. But I, I do think that that is better. And that has, to some degree, acted as a constraint on what the United States can do as a power. Because if you compare the US to Britain, as I am doing right now in a book I'm trying to write called Avoiding the British Empire, you can see that the United States is on almost every metric just sort of infinitely more powerful than the British Empire was in terms of manpower, in terms of meaningful rivals, in terms of any kind of military power you want. We are much, much, much more powerful, but we have not, we don't control that much territory. We've got, you know, 800 to 1,000 military bases across the planet, but we don't, we're not painting sections of the map, red, white, and blue, the way the British Empire did. I think there is some benevolence, some positive aspects to that, but I think it's way, way oversold. Something I've done a video on specifically, it's like why, why China will never rule the world is, is really only one other imperial system that I think it makes any sense to compare us to, and that's the British system. Because if you're talking about a comparison to Rome or the Mongols or the Persians or any one of a number of other historical empires, even the Portuguese or the Spanish, you're talking about a tremendously different historical and technological era. Um, you're talking about a period of time where, you know, most people couldn't read. Most, uh, I think a lot of the reasons why the British Empire was able to take power in so many places was, you know, it had a little bit to do with the fact that they had machine guns and, you know, the folks back then didn't have AK-47s, but it also had to do with ideas of nationalism and sort of self-respect of countries and whatnot, that these ideologies couldn't really build up when most of the world was spent most of its time farming dirt and may not have been able to, to read. We're now in a point where, in a point in time where most of the world can read. Most of the world has a sense of uh, its own national will and its own, sorry, I mean, there were always people in individual countries and regions that had these individual senses, but now these are mass senses. You know, uh, a given Iraqi or a given Afghan, well, more than there used to be given Afghans have the sense of themselves as either Afghan or Iraqi or whatever particular group they affiliate themselves with. And they are angry that someone would come in there and try and tell them what to do. So yes, the United States is a somewhat more benevolent hegemon, but does that have to do with the fact that we're nicer and better people? Or does that have to do with the fact that the world is actually much more individual foreign countries have much more power against us than they used to. You know, if Vietnam had worked out, you know, if we'd somehow just sort of figured it all out and made Vietnam work, then would we have moved on to Korea and, you know, moved across and, and actually created a more formal U.S. Empire? It was quite clear. If you read about what the Bush administration was about, they thought that 9-11 meant that, okay, we're now going to we're going to set up American values everywhere. They thought we were going to take Iraq and then we were going to take Syria and then we we're going to move on to Iran. That was their plan for 2003, 2004, 2005. Or at least that's what some people were thinking about. So I don't know if the virtue of U.S. empire has much to do with the United as much to do with the United States as it does with just the way that the world has changed technologically and sort of historically. I think that's my take on that. Yeah, I mean, as far as the exact question, is 
the current system as conceived and more or less controlled by the United States more benevolent than other superpower systems? I think on its own terms, you know, if you evaluate each system under its own morality, I think it's not, which might be an unfair way to do things. Because if you look at the Roman system... I think that's an unfair way to do things, but... Well, but what's what's interesting about it is if you look at the Roman system under Roman morality, for the most part, it's good. What they do to Carthage isn't necessarily because they kind of make up excuses, they make up their casus belli. But the Roman system, more or less, despite, you know, slavery and all sorts of stuff that's abhorrent to us now, works on its own terms. You look at British imperialism, for the most part, it works on its own terms, although, you know, massacres or whatever. But what's interesting about the U.S. system is it explicitly based on an anti-imperial mindset among its own people, right? But it's an imperial system. And you look at you look at the places that, you know, that I was talking about earlier, places places where we've kind of installed our own guys and supported them in the interest of maintaining a hegemon of power, especially in South America. We're doing it in direct contravention or a contradiction with our stated values. So in that sense, it's like it's like highly, highly immoral on its own terms. Whether it's more benevolent, thinking about our current conception of morality, eh, maybe. You know, Rob and I disagree. I think I think neoliberalism has done uh, quite a lot to oppress people around the world. I, I've, you know, spent the last two years just reading about all the people we've gotten killed by supporting dictators abroad. Maybe, but not enough that I think you could say it for sure. All superpower systems in the history of the world have been bad, to varying degrees of badness. And I think the way we think about the system right now shouldn't be to either try to think that we're worse than the British or the Romans, or to be self-aggrandizing about being better than either of those systems. The system is bad, and what we should be trying to do is improve it, not necessarily compare it, because I'm not sure it's a productive enterprise. So I, I, I completely agree that the uh, U.S. empire is absolutely the most hypocritical one in history. There's no question there. The, this, yeah, We're all about freedom and liberty and self-determination, unless you disagree with exactly the way we want to run things, and then we'll bomb you and sanction you and this, that, the other thing. I agree that it's very hypocritical, but just in terms of sheer body count, I mean, you, you bring up Carthage, and I think that's, I think whenever we talk about Rome, it's very important to talk about what actually was involved or any kind of, because there's this sort of romance when we talk about, you know, Roman fighting, or, oh yeah, of course there was slavery or, or, or medieval fighting. Uh, Carthage was, there were three wars that Rome fought against Carthage and the third one was launched and uh, its explicit goal was the extermination and destruction of this, this empire that they'd already, I don't know if they defeated them twice, but they certainly had defeated them in the second war. And it was its explicit goal was the extermination of a people. And uh, you can still go, you can see the ruins of Carthage today. I believe that's modern Tunis. I went there and there ain't much left. I mean, this is a a vast trading empire that was competitive uh, with Rome. And it's, it's very place in the historical record has been wiped out. So I think if you're talking about comparing modern empires like the British and the United States to like old empires. It, it, it's, it's, I think, a silly, silly approach, but it's also worth emphasizing to deal with like this very real strain in sort of modern thinking that's like, oh, maybe things were better before capitalism or better before, you know, this range of technology or whatnot. It's like, it was, I mean, the, the Romans were quite genocidal. Though also, they also, they also were hypocritical. They also, every time they went into a new place, uh, they, they made a point 
of making it making big speeches about how they were attacked. They were the party that was in the wrong as they sort of marched through and uh, genocided the fuck out of people. So, yeah, I mean, the United States is tremendously hypocritical as far as actual body count, I think, probably. Well, actually, it's probably higher just because there's a lot more people now than there used to be. But I actually consider, I consider the end game when I consider the body counts of empires. So I actually consider World War I and World War II to be direct results of the fall of the British Empire. So... Fair enough, yeah. So, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm perhaps uh, getting off topic. So, have we got any questions? More questions to address? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't watched in the chat. Uh... Oh, there was a thing. So, I think... Oh, gosh. Logica Extreme. I did notice... Wanted to know why, the w, why I thought the WTO was so great. And this actually uh, comes to another issue. I'll try to do this briefly. I was actually happy that if you want to talk about a place where Donald Trump discarded sort of informal soft power, uh, something that people point to is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was something that he refused to sign. And I actually was a fan of that decision because what the WTO is, and it has had really negative consequences for a range of economies. I don't know if you put it more on NAFTA or whatnot, but I think WTO is also seen as really hurting Mexico, is really hurting India, really hurting a number of countries because of the way that the initial steps of WTO negotiation basically said, okay, you got to sign up under this big treaty that everybody signed up for. We got an even playing field for everybody. But of course, the first thing that we're going to deal with when you sign up is how you're going to buy manufactured products, or we're going to have free trade in this class of products that you don't do. And then we're going to grow from there. That was the promise when the WTO was first signed in the, was it the 90s? I can't remember exactly when it was. The promise was, okay, sign up for this thing. We're all going to be at the same table. It's all going to be great. And there's going to be a lot of short-term pain because it's the developed countries that are going to win initially. But then we're going to have more negotiations. And we're going to you know, eventually deal with things like agriculture. We're actually eventually going to give developing countries more power vis-a-vis developed countries, because we're all sitting at the same table. And what really pisses me off about the TPP and the TTIP is that now, the WTO is now actually, as the capacity has been built in developing countries, is now getting to the point where occasionally it dings the United States, occasionally it dings Europe. And really importantly, with the Doha round, which has failed, the developed world at the WTO wants, wanted everybody in the WTO to sign all of this stuff on services and intellectual property, stuff that developed countries really care about. And everybody else at the WTO was like, "Uh, fuck you. No, we're not going to do that until you give us this stuff that we were promised back in the 90s or 2000s, until this WTO starts working for all of us. And that's the thing. The progress of the WTO is this broad-based thing. The rest of the world can hang it up. Unfortunately, the result of a couple developed countries led by the United States to the failure of the Doha round was to come up with this TPP, and then which was the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which dealt with Pacific trade deals, and then the TTIP, which I can't remember what it exactly says, but that was with the Atlantic. It's basically like a new free trade deal with Europe. So basically, these fucking agreements were like, oh, okay, the big club that we made everybody suffer to join, it's not working out for us anymore, so we're going to start new, smaller clubs. So the WTO... The way it's written, the way it functions now should begin to work in a way that is that works for India, for China, for large developing countries and smaller developing countries as well. It's, you know, their trade tribunals are provided that 
probably doesn't happen much in practice, but like Nicaragua or Papua New Guinea can bring a case against the United States. So that's beginning to work. So I absolutely, the WTO has had negative, negative aspects, but I think it's now at a point where it can evolve into something better. It actually is at that point, which is why we're seeing things like the TPP and the TTIP. I hope that answered your question, Logic Cool Extreme. Do you have anything no, on that? No, I'm glad, I'm glad you did that. I'm, I'm totally unqualified to, to talk about it. I spent a semester uh, reading WTO decisions, so I, I know a little bit of trade law. I do have a couple of questions that I've been, I've been taking them down from the chat. Actually, no, I, I got I got one that I want to talk about. So Robert Brown again, and I don't know why I'm constantly talking to the to the maybe the least productive member of this chat, but he said, you know, there have always been empires and they have for the most part never apologized. Did Genghis Khan ever apologize? Yeah, you know, uh, the world has always had oppressive political systems. And speaking of the Thucydides trap, for the last three thousand years and for the seven thousand years before that, the strong have done what they can and the weak have suffered what they must. And the great challenge of civilization, and especially of international civilization, has been to rise above that basest of all human relationships. So yeah, empires historically have not apologized for the things they've done wrong. And that doesn't mean that's a law of the universe that we need to follow forever, you know? I think apologizing for the things you've done wrong is the first step to maybe no longer doing those things. And the great hope that grew out of the horrible events of the 20th century is that we may be able to create international institutions that allow us to move finally after 10,000 years of human history to the second step. I, the I, agree second step. I agree with that completely. And I think that's, I think, and I, I'm, I'm sort of playing with that concept right now. And I think that's, I mean, we really have the opportunity to, um, to transcend um, the shitstorm that is all of human history. And I think that's, that actually gets to why um, answering questions about, like, is the U.S. more benevolent? Like, I think that the more history I read, the more I do realize that we have made incredible progress. Like, 100 years ago, at the outset of World War I, I guess that's now 105 years ago, like, most of the world was ruled by kings and queens. You know, sure, some European countries had parliaments, but they still had to go and, you know, they, they still had to deal with hereditary rulers. The fact that we have left that behind, yet we still treat our foreign policy in very similar ways. Like we've gotten rid of that aristocratic approach in our governments, you know, domestically. You know, I mean, sure, we've still got oligarchies and this, that, and the other thing, but this idea that you are born into a place, and that is the place where you live, has faded to an incredible extent worldwide, yet all of our conduct of foreign policy is still rooted in these, these, these infantile, thuggish prestige and, and, and questions long past there's any economic basis for it. Like, you don't, 21st century wealth has almost nothing to do with taking territory, having more land than the other guy. Yet things are still organized in that way. And there's a tremendous potential to grow beyond that. I think the main problem is that I see Trump squandering some of that potential. And not just Trump, Bush and Obama, both as well. Clinton as well. I mean, I think the last time we had an adult in the White House was George H.W. Bush. And I think he was more of an adult because it was easier back then, because you had this dual, this dual thing. You know, our foreign policy establishment at least had a goal it was working towards instead of running around rudderless as they have for the past 25, 30 years. 
I got a couple other ones here. Uh, how do you talk to anti-Semites? Particularly relevant in our chat. And will Trump get us into war with Iran? I think one of those is more in our wheelhouse. Uh, I think they're both they're both useful. You got an anti-Semite answer? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, so really the short, quick answer is you can't talk to anti-Semites because their belief is based on non-evidence. Uh, you know, the same way that you can't convince anybody that Kennedy was really killed by Oswald. But one thing that you can do to maybe sway some people, especially all the people that seem to now be on the fence or that maybe were always on the fence and now they're openly on the fence because of the Trump presidency, is that you can get yourself educated about where anti-Semitism comes from. For whatever reason, while I was in college, even though ostensibly I was studying Cuba, I ended up taking a ton of classes on the rise of fascism in Europe. And it's pretty interesting the way that traditional prejudices, which were based on sort of facts became the modern version of anti-Semitism. So you look at, for example, the fact that in medieval Europe, Christians couldn't lend money to Christians because usury was a sin and outlawed by the Pope. So each Christian monarch in Europe had to maintain a separate sort of non-citizen community of Jewish merchants to keep liquidity in the economy. And that's where we get this idea of like the Jewish moneylender. And it's not something that Jews are born into. It was this particular political situation that existed in Europe at the time. And because of that situation, you get Jewish banking families that grow up with the birth of commerce. So you get the Rothschilds who become incredibly rich, and they end up as part of the aristocracy in every monarchical country in Europe. And, you know, this story goes on for like another 10 hours. But there's ways in which these facts, prejudices, uh, and then especially scientific racism coming in at the end of the 1800s becomes modern anti-Semitism. And I think... You know, talking to people, especially on the fence, if you can talk about the history of where all this stuff comes from and explain in an educated way why the Chronicles of the Elders of Zion was written as a hoax by the Russian secret police, you know, maybe maybe you could maybe you could convince somebody. And at the very least, it's, it's uh, it'll make you seem smart. Uh, yeah, the, the history of anti-Semitism is, is extraordinary. Still today, in my fucking comments, people will surface the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Like, it, the most comprehensively debunked text in history, but there's still people banging on about it in my comments. The persistence of these sort of anti-Semitic libels is extraordinary. I'd like to take a, uh, so yes, uh, you know, for people who are actually advancing theories about the Rothschilds or this, that, and the other thing, it's just, just, just showing the world to them and, and illustrating that they believe things that are not true is a difficult thing to do, but it's something we have to keep doing. But actually to look at another side of this, I would also caution not everybody you think is anti-Semitic is anti-Semitic. If you're calling someone an anti-Semite based on their views of Israel, then you're, you, you, could be, you could be making a terrible mistake because you don't want to conflate those two issues. I'm tremendously conflict, conflicted on Israel, I'm not entirely sure where I come down on that issue. But if uh, somebody is complaining about the plight of the Palestinians, they are not an anti-Semite. And I think there's a lot of people in US public life who like to conflate the two, who, uh, I mean, anti-Semitism is a horrific, horrific thing. It has brought about the deaths of millions of people. And I think actually the, the public speakers who try to make it seem like if you don't support Israel, you're part of this ideology, are, are, are very, very problem because you are allowed, people are allowed to have opinions on the actions of a country that being accused of being part of one of the most horrific ideologies in human history. So I think that's all I've got to say on that. Any good, uh, what was the other one that you liked? 
Uh, will Trump get us into a war with North Korea? Was it North Korea or Iran? Sorry, yeah, Iran. Well, apparently he's already planning for the war with North Korea, so maybe the Iran question is a little more interesting. Yeah, I, I, this is something I think about all the goddamn time, and uh, I don't, I don't know. I think I actually answered this at some length in the, the last Sala video. Um, I've actually seen some some sort of promising things. I think over the past year, Saudi Arabia has given the Trump administration two great excuses to go to a war with Iran, and it hasn't. So I, I just don't know. I really hope not. I think a war with Iran would most probably uh, not involve an invasion of Iran. It would involve some kind of conflict between U.S. and proxies and Iran and proxies in Iraq and Syria. And God knows those countries don't need any more of that shit. So, yeah, I don't, I don't want to pretend to be confident about that. I'm getting slightly more optimistic that we might avoid it, mostly because Trump lacks the capacity that Bush and the Iraq war people had. But that doesn't mean we're, we're safe at all. Uh, there were points earlier on where I, I thought that an, a war with Iran or some kind of military conflict with Iran in the Trump administration was an inevitability. I no longer think it's an inevitability, but it's still a distinct possibility. So I think despite how craven and feckless Republicans in Congress have been on uh, you know every issue from healthcare to the FBI investigation to the recent tax plan, I think that even that Congress wouldn't tolerate an actual war with Iran, even re Republicans' perennial propensity for proposing a war with Iran. Now, Donald Trump launching a cruise missile or doing something of that nature where he has full power, 50-50 at best, I think, or worst, you know, whatever your preferred adjective. What does... So when Steve Bannon was still in the government, I mean, he's still saying stuff now, but now no one's obligated to pay attention to him. When Steve Bannon was in the government, he was a proponent of this kind of war between the Christian West and the Muslim East, the kind of clash of civilizations conflict. And he talked a few times explicitly before he was in the government about finding ways to provoke that kind of conflict. And when I got the news about us acknowledging that the capital of Israel was going to be Jerusalem, it seemed to me to be a move in exactly that direction, you know, an attempt to, to provoke some sort of attack on the United States because, and I've said this to my parents a couple of times, that I think I think everybody in the Trump White House is like praying for a 9-11. You know, they're praying for some sort of attack that's going to rally the country around the president and the move to Jerusalem seems like, like an attempt to provoke, you know? Yeah, so I don't, I don't expect an actual war with Iran, but uh, needling them to see if we can get something out of it. Yeah, I could see that. And that's a very good point, that, that if there is another large attack of some sort, then all bets are off. And yes, it, it becomes much more likely that something like this would happen. I think, I just, I don't think that the, um, I don't think the Trump administration quite reckoned with how much anger there would be against this move internationally. In, in the U.S., it's already faded out of the news cycle. But man, nobody in Europe is happy about this. Nobody, obviously nobody in the Middle East is happy about this. They may be succeeding in creating a unified front such that traditional state actors who are interested in terrorism or even, shit, even Al-Qaeda has got to be like, <laughs> this fucking clown is doing his job, uh, doing the job for us. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that the, they're going to succeed in creating that terrorist attack that you're right, they absolutely want. And also, it's, this gets back to another one of my bugbears. I mean, in, in the context of a lower oil price, there's just, there's just a lot less money swimming around for sort of planned terrorist attempts. It's, it's getting more and more pitiful the way that Trump latches on to every loser who 
drives his car into a crowd as if it's, you know, I don't know, the second coming of Jihad or something, when it's really just some sad loser driving his car into a crowd. So yeah, I don't know, cautiously optimistic on this question. All right, you've been watching the chat. Anything anything else you want to... You wanna... Well, here's, uh, so what do you think? Bruno Savagnat, Savagnat asks, what do you think are the answers to the problems caused by neoliberal policy, dramatic inequalities, global warming, and the rise of insecurities and a technocratization of politics? That's a lot to lay at the, the feet of neoliberal policies. Those should all sort of be dealt with differently, I think. Why don't we just cover on the, rather than stretch this out to three hours, why don't we just talk about dramatic inequalities? So what do you think the answer to the problem to dramatic inequality is, uh, John? Well, you know, I mean, I think uh, I think in a certain sense, a rising tide lifts all boats. I think certainly neoliberal politics as uh, promulgated through the world by the United States over the last half century has done a lot to provoke problems of inequality, especially if you look at a place like Chile, which before before the coup in 19... 19- in the early 1970s was a thoroughly middle-class, up-and-coming little country, and we managed to turn it into one of the least equal ones in the world. I mean, the other and the other answer there is inequality runs in cycles, and as long as the world's going on, eventually the world will be more equal, and then it will be less equal, and then later it will be more equal again. But, I mean, if you want my full take, the, I mean, the real answer to that entire question is that there may be solutions that I think are uh, just as a necessity or, or by... Uh, by the nature of human nature, are going to be cyclical. But because of the, well, yeah, the impending climate catastrophe that I pretty firmly believe is coming, I think there is no solution. I think everything is going to keep getting worse. We're all going to die. Maybe, well, maybe, and then maybe, you know, maybe all the Silicon Valley guys who are getting really into prepping, like they're going to populate the new horrible post-apocalyptic world. I got no hope. Bruno, my answer is I have no hope. None. And I have... Uh... I have plenty of hope. I think the world is getting better every day. I think we will. Uh, I think we will successfully avoid the climate apocalypse, as we've avoided the population apocalypse, the acid rain apocalypse, the DDT apocalypse, the every apocalypse we've avoided. I, not that I'm saying it's it's not something to focus on, but I think people are doing the work that is necessary. Inequality is something. I, I think that I can't. I, I might come off a little more lefty than than John here. This this seems seems shocking. But you know, he had mentioned that inequality goes in cycles. It tends to, but this is—it's not a self-correcting thing. I think there will be. I think we are certainly going to get some government intervention, as we did in the Progressive Era and in the New Deal, that functions to to, and also, of course, the Great Depression had a lot to do with reducing inequality. So some of these things are cyclical, but I do think we're going to see a lot of government intervention, even in the United States. I would consider myself a, a bit of a neoliberal. I do think that these policies have done a lot of good in the world, but I, I also concede that they've caused real problems. And uh, I think there will be some larger government intervention. Uh, I know a lot of people who you know, are not enthusiastic Trump supporters, but are sort of anti-anti-Trump. Well, oh, at least he's getting things done and you know, this tax cut's gonna be useful, this sort of thing. And what I, what I don't, what none of them are capable of seeing on their side of the partisan divide is that this Trump administration has made it much, and the sort of demolishing of norms that we've seen has made it much, much more, much easier for a left-wing successor to do all kinds of, I suppose, what I would call damage from a neoliberal perspective or 
perhaps create necessary reforms. I don't know. But, uh, you know, it's not going to be President Sanders, but uh, President Kanye or what have you is going to have a much freer hand with the redistribution and whatnot when all of these, when Trump and the Republicans' time in Congress is done because of Trump's demolishing of norms, which I think is something that not enough people have mentioned. And uh, I mean, if anyone's actually really interested, Bruno, for example, or not your business, there's a book by Rob's favorite author, Naomi Klein. I want that on the record. Favorite author. <laughs> and in her second to last book is called This Changes Everything. And she lays out an alternate model for the modern world in which we radically change our ideas about sort of the space of our lives. That is that, you know, we're going to have to think about living locally and making stuff for the people we know and kind of shrinking our worlds. And that might be the only way to really head off climate disaster. And it sounds parochial and sad, and we can't get into all of it right here. But if anybody's interested, go ahead and read the book. And if that's too much, you can you can just look up this one chapter. But I think it's actually, it's, it's a pretty beautiful way to live. And I got a little bit of that in Mexico. If there's one hope, it's that. And I think it's unlikely. And I think things are going to get worse until they're over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an optimist. I think we'll be fine. Yeah. Okay, so Orwa Barakat has asked this question over and over. And uh, let's see if we can do this briefly. Do you believe in U.S. democracy when bribing politicians is legal? Not to mention the Electoral College, where red states have more voting power, also with the monopoly of two parties. I do. John? Well, I don't know in what sense we're talking about believing in U.S. democracy. All governments are corrupt. It is a scale from not at all corrupt, which is non-existent, to where the corruption has destroyed any function of government, which is like Mexico is like, you know, an inch away from that side of the spectrum. The U.S. is in a place like it was at the turn of the last century where the wealthy have co-opted almost all political power and historical institutions of government like the Electoral College that he's talking about, the Senate and the fixed apportionment of representatives in the House that we fixed in 1913. All of those serve to skew power towards the wealthy and the poor rural people and the uneducated who for some reason really love voting for the wealthy. So my answer on this is pretty much the same as my answer on the last question, which is we'll get through this political moment. You know, the country might change in some way. There's a possibility, and I talked about it in my show on corruption a couple of months ago, that, you know, if we get to the point where Mexico's at, Mexico needs a revolution to change. I'm not saying it's going to get one, but normal politics no longer has the ability to change the Mexican situation. And the U.S. could get there if we kept doing exactly what we're doing for another 50 years. We could get to the point where literally no one in the country has any faith in the political system at all. I think that's unlikely. I think it'll probably swing around the same way it did last century. But for the same reason as the last question, I think that we're staring down two barrels of climate apocalypse. And I'm not sure we have the time to spend on fixing our politics before we fix the other stuff we got to fix. So I am a pessimist on that question. But the reason I say we're not where Mexico is is because we, yeah, democracy still works for a certain value of democracy in the United States. Votes still get counted. The, uh, I uh, believe that, I don't know, this is one of my bugbears that I might do a series on and lose half my audience with at some point, but this, that bribing politicians is legal. You know, it's not actually technically legal to bribe politicians, but it is undeniable that rich people run politics. And what I dispute is that it's ever really been different anywhere else uh, or in any other time period. Uh, people can talk about the progressive era and the reforms that were made then. And yes, but those reforms were made by 
rich people who wanted to make sure that the system that they were living under had still had some buy-in and didn't create that complete falling apart situation. So this idea that, that, that politicians are ever going to act outside of the interests of the people that pay their salaries through tax receipts, I don't know, I just don't, I don't buy it. I think what we need is we need a broader sense of what those interests are, a better sense of patriotism and compassion for the rest of the people in the country and the world from rich people. But yeah, the, the idea that there was some better time where you know rich folks weren't running things, and it's, it's not something that I really, really buy. The Electoral College is, I don't know, I go back and forth. I'm a pretty big supporter of the Constitution and stuff that was always in there, but man, I am uh, was not happy with the last result, that's for sure. Kind of have a sense that that might correct itself. I think Texas is on the cusp of going blue, and if Trump fucks up NAFTA, it'll be blue forever. So I don't know, the Electoral College may once again be something we don't talk about for another 50 years, but uh, who knows. So I'm an optimistic specific. I got a couple straight, let's see. On what points do you disagree with Naomi Klein? I am embarrassed to admit from my knee-jerk dismissal of her is that I have only listened to a couple interviews. I have not read her book, but my objection to Naomi Klein largely comes from the shock doctrine thesis, this idea that there are malicious folks running around hoping for places to fail so they can put in their, their sort of set of ideas. I don't know, I guess there's some, there's a, scrap of truth to that, but I think it was sort of the malice that she implied there that I sort of disagreed with. That there's any any philosophy or approach to politics that assumes that there's anything deeper going on than greed and short-sightedness kind of pisses me off. This idea that there's an Illuminati or a new world order or this, that, or the other thing. It's like, no, there are Republicans in power who want less taxes for themselves and their donors. It's all fairly straightforward. This idea that there's a doctrine or a specific approach or that the, you know, the Trilateral Commission or Goldman Sachs, they're figuring out exactly how to, like, fuck you better. Um, I, I don't sound right, but uh, I, <laughs> I don't really put any stock in that. And that was sort of the impression that I got from a few interviews with Naomi Klein around the time that Shot Doctrine came out. And I've since avoided her work, which is perhaps unfair, but, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. And I think that's fair enough. I think maybe there was a little bit too much intention implied in the stuff that's going on in the shock doctrine. And I think part of that was sort of dramatic artifice for the book. But I think you can say pretty indisputably that what we've done is set up a system that encourages when stuff happens, you know, like the Soviet government collapses or Pinochet gets elected. And that stuff that happens is sometimes the intentional result of actions on the part of, you know, the CIA, whoever else. But we've set up a system that all on its own exploits those situations over and over again in a specific way. But it doesn't have to be intentional. You know, capitalism is like pretty good at what it does. And nobody has to be running the show for it to do that. I definitely believe in dumb, dumb incentives for, uh, for systems, they just continuing in perpetuity. The amount of stuff that just happens outside of actual human planning, I don't think people fully appreciate that now at this point. I mean, we're already kind of living in a, uh, under the rule of the robots, but the, the robots are all in contracts. They're all in paper form at this point, but they're still out there. Yeah. All right, so we're at a minute, or two hours, 20. Oh gosh, yeah, okay, so. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't have anything else. I might be producing some Vietnam videos shortly, which Rob and I, Rob and I are still figuring it out, but they might, they might end up in his channel. But yeah, that's all I got.
Uh, nope, and both of us have Patreon. Patreon recently uh, is very responsive. Crowdfunding site, it uh, recently tried to initiate a bunch of changes that were very bad for patrons, and the outcry was such that they that they decided not to do it. Imagine that, a, uh, a modern Silicon Valley website that actually responds to its users. It's uh, exciting stuff. Both John and I run uh, separate uh, Patreons. I'm afraid that uh, your donations to our channels are not tax deductible, but uh, as you consider your holiday giving plans, it might, might be nice to think of uh, us, because we, I think, provide better coverage of these issues than uh, pretty much anything else in the U.S. scene. I say so humbly. And uh, yeah, uh, with that, I think uh, that's everything I've got. John, you got anything else? No, no. I uh, hope everybody has a good holiday weekend. I support the war on Christmas, so I won't mention any holiday in particular. But I hope people have a good time. I'll have show it on Monday anyway. Thanks for showing up. <laughs>